We are live. Welcome to another episode of Unscripted, and I have great pleasure to introduce Mike Pedrick. Hi, Mike. Thanks very much for joining me. Much appreciated. My pleasure. Honored to be here. Mike, before we get started, where are you located? Where are you physically located in the world? I'm in the Denver area, just southeast of Denver. And yeah, it's always amazes me, like people that are c- contributors to the space and have done so much. I always ask the question, like, how did you get started? What was your kind of journey and path you took? Yeah, so that's a really great question, actually. I started in IT in 2002 or so. I was washing out very rapidly from an architectural design career. And fast forward a few years, I'm working for a manufacturing firm, running IT for that firm, and we had an incident out on the production floor. Somebody got hurt. And our insurance provider kicked off a review of our processes to include our protocols. And at the time, I thought that I really had my stuff together. I was doing all the things that I was supposed to be doing. I had a state-of-the-art firewall, and of course, that should be all you need, right? And failed the audit miserably. There was a lot of feedback from that audit. And so I took it on, I took it in my mind that if I'm not sure of myself in that particular space, then, you know, that it's got to also be true for a lot of small and medium sized business folks. So I started, I moved into security and eventually security consulting exclusively. And I think that was probably nine years ago at this point. And so talk to me about, so that's so interesting because that's, that was like the pivot point for you. And you mentioned there was a gap or disconnect between what you thought was the status quo, like in terms of how you're doing and, and what actually happened. But without divulging too much of information, do you, can you pinpoint why that was? Like what was like, if you could like just figure out like one or two things that, that were, yeah. what was the gap? I can call it out, especially now as a consultant and having had the benefit of interfacing with so many other organizations like the one that I was working in and environments like what I had built up. My controls, what controls I had implemented were based on best practices, what I thought I was supposed to implement, have AV, have, have a, again, a good state-of-the-art firewall, have this, have these things. Those are the symptoms of the program, not necessarily the program itself. And so there was a lot of process flow, a lot of data protection documentation and policy documentation that just flat didn't exist in my environment at the time. Because it wasn't, it wasn't that I was consciously not doing those things. It was just that when you're in an operational capacity, you're not thinking about those sorts of requirements. The notion that you have to have a written information security policy and that it provides value to your program overall. So yeah, I mean, that, that's where I faltered the hardest was it didn't matter that I had some of the, some great tools in my tool belt, so to speak. It was the overall program that missed the mark dramatically, and at least through the perspective of that, that insurance-based audit at the time. And that audit was, I want to say that was 2007 or 2008, so that was a very different time than now even still. But when they ask things like, show us your policy, well, I don't have a policy, I just know what I'm doing. The ego of my ego at the time was probably greater than it is today. And like I said, as a consultant on the other side of that transaction, I see that quite a bit out in the world, even still. And that false sense of security, pun intended, was that because you had made investment in all those, these tool sets that were implemented? Because I think that's happening quite a bit. I think that there's companies are inundated with these tools and they go out and spend the money and then install it and then something happened and then they go, oh shit, I should have done X, Y, Z. 
Yeah, in fact, I will be very specific, and this will trigger some of the Cisco folks out there. I had just transitioned from a PIX to an ASA, and everybody had me convinced that moving to the ASA was going to solve all of my problems. It was a much better firewall than the PIX. Looking back, that's a pretty low bar to set. The ASA was definitely a better firewall than the PIX, but still does not a defense strategy make. So, it, uh, it might, yeah. but this... But you just described, though, what you just, I want to double click on that because what you just described, isn't it? We hear that from all vendors. Yeah. Hey, you install this and you're great. You're good to go. We're not going to have this anymore. Absolutely. And I want to be fair to, to vendors and to developers and folks who are product focused that it is at least a significant portion of their motivation is to provide a product that does serve their clients well does do what it's what it's intended to do but i think that there's a drive toward if we want to get this everywhere if we want to get it out into environments we want to sell the required quantity of these things then we need to make it sound really good and some folks are better at making things sound better than they actually are which is i think part of the problem that we see in the industry is that any vendor you go into any conference you go into any vendor sponsored event and i'm not trying to be reductive when i say this but They'll tell you it's the greatest thing since sliced bread. And it will, you just install this magic box in your environment and it will solve all of your problems. And the reality is somewhere a bit short of that. And so I, I always advocate for a, a bit of healthy skepticism on the part of my clients as an advisor now to say, let's really unpack what this tool, product, service, platform, let's unpack what it actually does for you and doesn't meet your requirements. And the shocking thing, again, I'm not trying to throw anybody under the bus, but the shocking thing to me is just how many organizations out there haven't really thought through what their requirements are. And so they're easy pickings for, for vendors who are want to sell them a thing without establishing that requirement set up front. Thank you, Mike. This is not a let's bash the vendor session. I think we definitely need vendors. They're in the forefront of innovation. And uh, the tools and the services they provide are overall a plus to the community and the the industry as a whole but as you mentioned there are other the piece of the, the there's so much more pieces to the puzzle than just implementing a technology out there and so you as a consultant today and you have a lot of experience so when you get a new client what is what is it the things that you follow to figure it out what it is that they need next and how to elevate their security controls and security stands to the higher level. What's the process like for you? I want to preface what I'm about to say by with a disclaimer. In addition to my role professionally, I'm also a accredited trainer for ISACA and a member of the ISACA Denver Chapter Board. And one of the basic tenets of the ISACA to cybersecurity is by pushing everything through the lens of risk. We don't act until we've considered risk because if there's no risk to the organization, if there's no impact to the organization, then it's not even on our checklist of things to do. We don't, we're not in service, operating in service to a checklist, we're operating in service to the concept of risk. And so one of the first things that I do when I interface with a client is try to get a gauge for what is their approach to cybersecurity. Is it an, a never-ending checklist for them or are they considering business risk and acting accordingly? And if they're not, I try to, as gently as possible, steer them back toward that center, back toward that North Star. We are in service to, again, we are operating in service to the business. We're protecting the business, business's capability for generating revenue. We're not in service to a framework. We're not in service to a standard. We're not in service to some amorphous list of best practices that changes on a dime. Again, we're protecting our organization, they who sign our checks. 
And if that organization is open to risk, we conduct ourselves accordingly. If they're risk averse, we conduct ourselves accordingly there as well. And so whenever I interface with a client, that's one of my first questions is, what is your linkage to the business? How do you approach risk to the organization? Then it falls out after that. Okay, now we can have a conversation about controls, which again should be pursuant to the idea that we don't institute any controls absent a statement of policy that requires or necessitates those controls. And I have to confess, in, especially in the space that I work in, most organizations, they don't even have that security, piece, that security policy piece. And so that's step two, right? Okay, let's get the policy out of the way. And then we can start talking about specifics and then we'll get around to the controls that you have in place today. Do they align with the policy? as we've put it out. And if it doesn't, then it's just a minor implement in my mind. And from my perspective, implementation of controls is an academic process. It's relatively easy. I won't say it's inexpensive. I won't say it's non-trivial from a resource or capital perspective, but I will say if we get everything done up, up front, we do our homework, we know what the expectations are, we know what the risk appetite of the organization is, etc., then the control process is it's like going through an old Sears catalog, right? I need X. These are the organizations that provide X. Now budget decides how to proceed from there. And let me ask you this. When you ask the kind of the first question, does the answer is always clear to them or is it something that they've sometimes they have to stop and think through it? Because again, it's depending on the size of the organization, there may not even be, there might be different business units and they all not necessarily are integrated in the way that we think that they are. Yeah, for sure. And that's one of the things that I think often gets exposed straight away is that if there's the, the relationship between cybersecurity, IT slash IS, whatever name you want to put on our particular uh, business process, the linkage between that and the business is one thing. The culture of the business, the way the business approaches its own internal operations, that's also important. And in a lot of cases, by virtue of engaging with the IT or IS team through the lens of risk management, we expose some issues from a management perspective. And so one of the, one of the first questions I'll ask an organization is, do you feel like you have adequate support from above? And everybody, almost everybody, a significant number of people in this space roll their eyes and say, no, I don't have the budget I need. I don't have the people I need. I just don't have enough attention. And my rebuke usually is, have you asked for an audience? Have you established that relationship with the, with the business units or, and you know, executive leadership? Some will say no. They just haven't had the opportunity or the motivation or the guts to do. And then other times it comes down to, I've tried over and over again. I've tried multiple ways, multiple times, and it's just not a priority for the organization. Well, that's a thing too. If it's not a priority for the organization, then it's not a priority for the organization. That's just how it is. Anyway, yeah, so going, looking at security through the lens of risk often exposes opportunities for improvement at the business level, but that's a bit out of scope for me in most cases. And it's interesting you mentioned is the fact that they, sometimes it's just, again, it's nothing to do with technology. It's a matter of just communicating that to the powers that be and having that conversation prior to something actually happened. You know, that, right. and that's really critical. It's just, it's always say that you want to have a plumber and doctor and lawyer on the speed dial before things happen because once things happen, it's too late almost. So how do you coach them to, to go ahead and start that conversation? Because again, even that is a bit of an art form. How do you, 
because they some of the executives are no they don't have the idea of what it takes to secure organization and they're like maybe they do more than they used to but they're oblivious to the risks yeah there's a couple of things to put out there the first one i would say is that there's a lot of you have to value the fact that these are human beings right and if you try to imagine in practical terms, the only interaction your group has with executive leadership is when you're coming begging for money to implement a thing. And they roll back through their mind, hey, I spent seven figures last year and I don't know if we've gotten benefit from it. And especially if their only exposure to what's going on in the team is that there was an incident, there was an event, there's a bill and there's an event that we're aware of, but other than that, we have no idea what the machinations of that particular group are. Then it's easy to see why they would bristle when you come for the next thing, when you come forward for the next thing that you're asking for. And you think that they're being recalcitrant, but really what they are is, again, they're being human. They just don't see the benefit yet. And so even if you have to call for, I want one time per month to stand in front of you for 30 minutes and give you a state of the union, that's what I want to do. I want to bring forth those metrics. Even if those metrics are, everything's good to go, right? That's step one. Get that meeting. Get that 30 minutes with the executive team and report based on what's going on. Now, that also requires you to have some things to report, right? And so there's a bit of art form to that, but it's well worth the trouble. And again, in fairness to these organizations, I think a lot of them are so stuck in operational, putting out fires. There's no opportunity or there's minimal opportunity for forward thinking, strategy-based thinking, etc. But it's just like anything else in our personal lives. You never find the time to do a thing. You have to make time to do that thing. And you'd think that there's some sort of reporting mechanism for maybe like a debrief or briefing to the board, maybe every so often for security. But you're talking about specifically about maybe the all levels of a business, right? So it doesn't have to be all the way to the board, but maybe a, a IT security department reporting to the head of business and so on and doing that on a regular basis for providing some insight in terms of what it is that's happening in the industry from a security perspective. So it's not necessarily just the board reporting to the board, but it's all levels of the organizations. I like to take it a little different approach. I want to report to the board or to executive leadership in the absence of board that entity is. I want to report to them. I think that should be a borderline biological imperative for a security professional. But that reporting should have input from all other corners of the organization. And there's multiple benefits for doing so. You can't know what's going on in sales or in operations or in accounting if you don't interface with those teams. And so if nothing else, that they are absolutely an opportunity for input into your reporting functionality. One of my first jobs in IT, I had a liaison to our board at the time that a couple of his cliches that have landed better with the benefit of time since was that you want to manage by walking around. You don't want to be the person stuck in a back room that only comes out when somebody rings the bell. There's value in appearing on the floor, right? Getting in front of people. Hey, how you doing? How's the family? Or whatever. Be conversational, be approachable, be a part of that group because you never know when you're talking to somebody about a thing and they say, oh, you know what? While you're here, I want to talk about this thing that occurred a couple minutes ago and it turns out that you can head something off at the past before it's a catastrophe because you're there in that moment. And so you foster that relationship with those business process groups. And again, their input to you contributes to your reporting up the chain. And I don't want to put too fine a point on it, but if you as a security professional come before leadership with 
that you can demonstrably prove that you are interfacing with all other aspects of the organization, that's sticky. That makes you important to the organization. I don't mean in terms of puffed out chest, I'm the greatest thing, I'm the most important piece of this organization. But again, it means you're a part of the organization, not just, again, an automaton that only comes out when somebody rings. I, lo I absolutely love that. That's a really great input. And so how do you do that in a virtual world? Because a lot of the security professionals are now remote and they're the only time you interface with them is through emails. How do you, again, do that walk around in a kind of the environment we're in? Yeah, it is a little trickier. I love interfacing with organizations that have a platform, an internal platform or an internal culture of once a month we're having a team lunch. Come or don't, but you're welcome to do right. But I'll also reach out to folks that I know in, in specific business processes and I lead with something like, I need information or I need you to help me with a particular thing. Just again, casual. I'm not trying to smack them upside the face with, yo, I need your RTO report. No, I need to know what your RTO is, your RPO expectation or slapping them in the face with, hey, a member of your team is not following policy. Just a, I'd like to have a dialogue about what your process flow. I'd like to understand what's going on in your particular environment. What's important to you as a business process owner? One of the, the textbook processes that should be happening from a risk perspective is a business impact analysis. And I don't get, I think it gets short shrift out in the real world. It doesn't get often, done often enough, but there's your tool. There's your crowbar into those business processes. Hey, sales director, what is most important to you? What do you use on a daily basis that you could not possibly live without? And again, it's a two-way value proposition. You're getting what you need from them so you can build your resiliency and fault tolerance protocols. And then from their perspective, you're interested in what's important to them. Holy cow, what a revelation, right? And um, it's, you know, it's a 30-minute dialogue, easy to schedule, easy to conduct. You start with some small talk. Now, I will say not everybody is comfortable with those sorts of conversations or initiating those sorts of conversations. So that, that's something that you have to factor into how you conduct yourself. But Yeah, it's part of the soft skills, I think, that every security professional, we talked about this as the hard soft skills that require to, to do our jobs on a regular basis. And in, from a quantification of risk to the business, no one foresaw the fact that we all had to work from home in two weeks. So a lot of these unknown events that were completely far-fetched, how does organization today, like trying to figure out like what is the next potential thing that happened and how you, because again, it's, if it's, you're talking about the risk and associated impact, there's just a lot of unknowns. Yeah. We, I feel like we're in an environment that's ever-changing. Yeah, I would agree. And to your point exactly, when the pandemic happened and everybody spread to the four winds, there was a reckoning, I think, of how we approach certain conversations. Now, I want to put out there that I don't believe in leading with FUD. I don't want any, I don't want to threaten anybody, especially people who sign paychecks. And I don't want to tell somebody a thing is going to occur without being absolutely certain that it's going to occur. And the only way I'm certain is if I'm doing it. And that's a felony, right? And so I'm not, I'm never willing to go into somebody's office and say, if we don't buy this thing or do this thing or implement this thing, then there's going to be this dramatic catastrophic event. I always try to approach it as here's my semi-quantitative estimation of what's going to happen based on a specific risk scenario, right? What is the risk of somebody going to work from home and somebody in their home that is not them gets access to sensitive information? scale from one to 10, here we are, or red, yellow, green, here we are, right? Now, 
my, my advice to clients and my own approach is to make sure that one of my very first conversations with leadership is, this is how I'm going to relay risk to you. Where I can put together a dollar amount, I will try, but it'll be a range. But otherwise, again, red, yellow, green, scale from 1 to 5, scale from 1 to 10. And I'm going to tell you what it is. No pressure, no trying to browbeat you about it, but you tell me if you think that's acceptable or we should try to do something about that. And so I think that, and prognosticating certain things, right? Nobody could have predicted in October of 2019 that three months later, again, we're all working from home and IT departments are furiously trying to distribute laptops and whatever else, right? So I can't say with any degree of confidence that there's another major shakeup like that coming. But I do advocate for have a game plan for the unknown. Have something ready to go. The more prepared you are during times of peace, the better better suited you are for when war occurs, right? That's the best I can do. I can't commit to anything. I absolutely try to avoid absolutes. <laughs> That's good. That's a good one. What about the risk tolerance? Because this is, again, it's not something that is the same across organizations. Some organizations are more, they're okay with being a little riskier than others. It's sure. In fact, maybe it's the nature of the business. You yeah. have to take on certain risk types. How do you deal with that as a security professional and how do you get the kind of the gist of where they are in terms of how much risk are they willing to take? If I'm honest, I ask. I will ask straight out, whether in an enterprise capacity or as a, as a consultant, and I try to ask it in as plain. So we're live. Welcome to another episode of Unscripted, and I have great pleasure to introduce Mike Pedrick. Hi, Mike. Thanks very much for joining me. Much appreciated. My pleasure. Honored to be here. Mike, before we get started, where are you located? Where are you physically located in the world? I'm in the Denver area, just southeast of Denver. And yeah, it's always amazes me, like people that are c contributors to the space and have done so much. I always ask the question, like, how did you get started? What was your kind of journey and path you took? Yeah, so that's a really great question, actually. I started in IT in 2002 or so. I was washing out very rapidly from an architectural design career. And flat, fast forward a few years, I'm working for a manufacturing firm, running IT for that firm, and we had an incident out on the production floor. Somebody got hurt, and our insurance provider kicked off a review of our processes to include our protocols. And at the time, I thought that I really had my stuff together. I was doing all the things that I was supposed to be doing. I had a state-of-the-art firewall, and of course, that should be all you need, right? and failed the audit miserably. There was a lot of feedback from that audit. And so I took it on, took it in my mind that if I'm not sure of myself in that particular space, then you know that it's gotta also be true for a lot of small and medium-sized business folks. So I started, I moved into security and eventually security consulting exclusively. And I think that was probably nine years ago at this point. And so talk to me about, so that's so interesting because that's that was the kind of pivot point for you. Uh -huh. And you mentioned there was a gap or a disconnect between what you thought was the status quo, like in terms of how you're doing and what actually happened. Without divulging too much of information, do you, can you pinpoint why 
that was like what was like if you could like just figure out like one or two things that, that were yeah. what was the gap i can call it out especially now as a consultant and having had the benefit of interfacing with so many other organizations like the one that i was working in and environments like what i had built up my controls what controls i had implemented were based on best practices, what I thought I was supposed to implement, have AV, have, have a, again, a good state-of-the-art firewall, have this, have these things. Those are the symptoms of the program, not necessarily the, the program itself. And so there was a lot of process flow, a lot of data protection documentation and, and policy documentation that just flat didn't exist in my environment at the time, because it wasn't, it wasn't that I was consciously not doing those things. It was just that when you're in an operational capacity, you're not thinking about those sorts of requirements. The notion that you have to have a written information security policy and that it provides value to your program overall. So yeah, I mean, that, that's where I faltered the hardest was it didn't matter that I had some of the, some great tools in my tool belt, so to speak. It was the overall program that missed the mark dramatically. And so at least through the perspective of that, that insurance-based audit at the time, and that audit was I want to say that was 2007 or 2008. So that was a very different time than now, even still. But when they ask things like, show us your policy, I don't have a policy. I just know what I'm doing. The ego of my ego at the time was probably greater than it is today. And like I said, I, as a consultant on the other side of that transaction, I see that quite a bit out in the world, even still. And this, that false sense of security, pun intended, was that because you had made investment in all those, these tool sets that were implemented? Because I think that's happening quite a bit. I think that there's companies are inundated with these tools and they go out and spend the money For sure. and then install it and then something happened and then they go, oh shit, I should have done XYZ. Yeah. In fact, I will be very specific and this will trigger some of the Cisco folks out there. I had just transitioned from a PIX to an ASA. And everybody had me convinced that moving to the ASA was going to solve all of my problems. It was a much better firewall than the PICS. Looking back, that's a pretty low bar to set. The ASA was definitely a better firewall than the PICS, but still does not a defense strategy make. Mike, uh, yeah. but this, what you just described though, what you just, I want to double click on that because what you just described, isn't it, we hear that from all vendors, yeah. hey, you install this and you're great, you're good to go. We're not going to have this anymore. Right, absolutely. And I want to be fair to, to vendors and to developers and folks who are product focused, that it is at least a significant portion of their motivation is to provide a product that does serve their clients well, does do what it's, what it's intended to do. But I think that there's a drive toward, if we want to get this everywhere, if we want to get it out into environments, we want to sell the required quantity of these things, then we need to make it sound really good. And some folks are better at making things sound better than they actually are, which is, I think, part of the problem that we see in the industry is that any vendor, you go into any conference, you go into any vendor-sponsored event, and I'm not trying to be reductive when I say this, but they'll tell you it's the greatest thing since sliced bread. And it will, you just install this magic box in your environment and it will solve all of your problems. And the reality is somewhere a bit short of that. And so I always advocate for a, a bit of healthy skepticism on the part of my clients as an advisor now to say, let's really unpack what this tool, product, service, platform, let's unpack what it actually does for you and doesn't meet your requirements. And the shocking thing, again, I'm not trying to throw anybody under the bus, but the shocking thing to me is just how many organizations out there haven't really thought through what their requirements are. And so they're easy pickings for vendors who are want to sell them a thing without establishing that requirement. 
set up front. Thank you, Mike. This is not a it's bashed vendor session. I think we definitely need vendors. They are in the forefront of innovation. And uh, the tools and the services they provide are overall a plus to the community and the the industry as a whole. But as you mentioned, there are other the piece of the, the there's so much more pieces to the puzzle than just implementing a technology out there. And so, you as a consultant today and you have a lot of experience. When you get a new client, what is what is it the things that you follow to figure it out? What it is that they need next and how to elevate their security controls and security stands to the higher level. What's the process like for you? I want to preface what I'm about to say by with a disclaimer. In addition to my role professionally, I'm also a accredited trainer for ISACA and a member of the ISACA Denver Chapter Board. And one of the basic tenets of the ISACA approach to cybersecurity is by pushing everything through the lens of risk. We don't act until we've considered risk because if there's no risk to the organization, if there's no impact to the organization, then it's not even on our checklist of things to do. We don't, we're not in service, operating in service to a checklist, we're operating in service to the concept of risk. And so one of the first things that I do when I interface with a client is try to get a gauge for what is their approach to cybersecurity. Is it a never-ending checklist for them or are they considering business risk and acting accordingly? And if they're not, I try to, as gently as possible, steer them back toward that center, back toward that North Star. We are in service to, again, we are operating in service to the business. We're protecting the business, business's capability for generating revenue. We're not in service to a framework. We're not in service to a standard. We're not in service to some amorphous list of best practices that changes on a dime. Again, we're protecting our organization, they who sign our checks. And if that organization is open to risk, we conduct ourselves accordingly. If they're risk averse, we conduct ourselves accordingly there as well. And so whenever I interface with a client, that's one of my first questions is, what is your linkage to the business? How do you approach risk to the organization? And then it falls out after that. Okay, now we can have a conversation about controls, which again should be pursuant to the idea that we don't institute any controls absent a statement of policy that requires or necessitates those controls. And I have to confess, in, especially in the space that I work in, most organizations, they don't even have that security piece, that security policy piece. And so that's step two, right? Okay, let's get the policy out of the way. And then we can start talking about specifics and then we'll get around to the controls that you have in place today. Do they align with the policy? as we've put it out. And if it doesn't, then it's just a minor implement in my mind. And from my perspective, implementation of controls is an academic process. It's relatively easy. I won't say it's inexpensive. I won't say it's non-trivial from resource or uh, capital perspective, but I will say if we get everything done up, up front, we do our homework, we know what the expectations are, we know what the risk appetite of the organization is, et cetera, then the control process is it's like going through an old Sears catalog, right? I need X. These are the organizations that provide X. Now budget decides how to proceed from there. And let me ask you this. When you ask the kind of the first question, does the answer is always clear to them or is it something that they've sometimes they have to stop and think through it? Because again, it's depending on the size of the organization, there may not even be, there might be different business units and they all not necessarily are integrated in the way that we think that they are. Yeah, uh, for sure. And that's one of the things that I think often gets exposed straight away is that if there's 
the, the relationship between the cybersecurity, IT slash IS, whatever name you want to put on our particular business process, the linkage between that and the business is one thing. The culture of the business, the way the business approaches its own internal operations, that's also important. And in a lot of cases, by virtue of engaging with the IT or IS team through the lens of risk management, we expose some issues from a management perspective. And so one of the, one of the first questions I'll ask an organization is, do you feel like you have adequate support from above? And everybody, almost everybody, a significant number of people in this space roll their eyes and say, no, I don't have the budget I need. I don't have the people I need. I just don't have enough attention. And my rebuke usually is, have you asked for an audience? Have you established that relationship with the business units or, and executive leadership? Some will say no. They just haven't had the opportunity or the motivation or the guts to do. And then other times it comes down to, I've tried over and over again. I've tried multiple ways, multiple times, and it's just not a priority for the organization. Well, that's a thing too. If it's not a priority for the organization, then it's not a priority for the organization. And that's just how it is. Anyway, yeah, so the, going... Looking at security through the lens of risk often exposes opportunities for improvement at the business level, but that's a bit out of scope for me in most cases. And it's interesting you mentioned is the fact that they sometimes it's just, again, it's nothing to do with technology. It's a matter of just communicating that to the powers that be and having that conversation prior to something actually happened. You know, that, and that's really critical. It's just, it's always say that you want to have a plumber and doctor and lawyer on the speed dial before things happen because once things happen, it's too late almost. So how do you coach them to to go ahead and start that conversation? Because again, even that is a bit of an art form. How do you, because some of the executives are no, they don't have the idea of what it takes to secure an organization. And they're like, maybe they do more than they used to, but they're oblivious to the risks. Yeah, there's a couple of things to put out there. The first one I would say is that there's a lot of, you have to value the fact that these are human beings, right? And if you try to imagine in practical terms, the only interaction your group has with executive leadership is when you're coming begging for money to implement a thing. And they roll back through their mind, hey, I spent seven figures last year and I don't know if we've gotten benefit from it. And especially if their only exposure to what's going on in the team is that there was an incident, there was an event, there's a bill and there's an event that we're aware of, but other than that, we have no idea what the machinations of that particular group are. Then it's easy to see why they would bristle when you come for the next thing, when you come forward for the next thing that you're asking for. And you think that they're being recalcitrant, but really what they are is, again, they're being human. They just don't see the benefit yet. And so even if you have to call for, I want one time per month to stand in front of you for 30 minutes and give you a state of the union, that's what I want to do. I want to bring forth those metrics. Even if those metrics are, everything's good to go. That's step one. Get that meeting. Get that 30 minutes with the executive team and report based on what's going on. Now, that also requires you to have some things to report, right? And so there's a bit of art form to that, but it's well worth the trouble. And again, in fairness to these organizations, I think a lot of them are so stuck in operational, putting out fires. There's no opportunity or there's minimal opportunity for forward thinking, strategy-based thinking, et cetera. But it's just like anything else in our personal lives. You never find the time to do a thing. You have to make time to do that thing. And you'd think that there's some sort of reporting mechanism for maybe like a debrief or briefing to the board, maybe every so often for security. 
But you're talking about specifically about maybe the all levels of business, right? So it doesn't have to be all the way to the board, but maybe a IT security department reporting to the head of business and so on and doing that on a regular basis for providing some insight in terms of what it is that's happening in the industry from a security perspective. So it's not necessarily just the board reporting to the board, but it's all levels of the organizations. I like to take it a little different approach. I want to report to the board or to executive leadership in the absence of board, whatever that entity is. I want to report to them. I think that should be a borderline biological imperative for a security professional. But that reporting should have input from all other corners of the organization. And there's multiple benefits for doing so. You can't know what's going on in sales or in operations or in accounting if you don't interface with those teams. And so if nothing else, that they are absolutely an opportunity for input into your reporting functionality. One of my first jobs in IT, I had a liaison to our board at the time that a couple of his cliches that have landed better with the benefit of time since was that you want to manage by walking around. You don't want to be the person stuck in a back room that only comes out when somebody rings the bell. There's value in appearing on the floor, right? Getting in front of people. Hey, how you doing? How's the family? Or whatever. Be conversational, be approachable, be a part of that group because you never know when you're talking to somebody about a thing and they say, oh, you know what? While you're here, I want to talk about this thing that occurred a couple minutes ago and it turns out that you can head something off at the past before it's a catastrophe because you're there in that moment. And so you foster that relationship with those business process groups. And again, their, their input to you contributes to your reporting up the chain. And I don't want to put too fine a point on it, but if you as a security professional come before leadership with that you can demonstrably prove that you are interfacing with all other aspects of the organization, that's sticky. That makes you important to the organization. I don't mean in terms of puffed out chest, I'm the greatest thing, I'm, I'm the most important piece of this organization, but again, it means you're a part of the organization, not just, again, an automaton that only comes out when somebody rings. I, lo I absolutely love that. That's a really great input. And so how do you do that in a virtual world? Because a lot of the security professionals are now remote and they're the only time you interface with them is through emails. How do you, again, do that walk around in a kind of the environment we're in? Yeah, it is a little trickier. I love interfacing with organizations that have a platform, an internal platform or an internal culture of once a month we're having a team lunch. Come or don't, but you're welcome to do right. But I'll also reach out to folks that I know in, in specific business processes and I lead with something like, I need information or I need you to help me with a particular thing. Just again, casual. I'm not trying to smack them upside the face with, yo, I need your RTO report. I need to know what your RTO is, your RPO expectation or slapping them in the face with, hey, a member of your team is not following policy. Just a, I'd like to have a dialogue about what your process flow. I'd like to understand what's going on in your particular environment. What's important to you as a business process owner? One of the textbook processes that should be happening from a risk perspective is a business impact analysis. And I don't get, I think it gets short shrift out in the real world. It doesn't get often done often enough, but there's your tool, there's your crowbar into those business processes. Hey, sales director, what is most important to you? What do you use on a daily basis that you could not possibly live without? And again, it's a two-way value proposition. You're getting what you need from them so you can build your resiliency and fault tolerance protocols. And then from their perspective, you're interested in what's important to them. Holy cow, what a revelation, right? 
And uh, it's, again, it's a 30-minute dialogue. Easy to schedule, easy to conduct. You start with some small talk. Now, obviously, not everybody is comfortable with those sorts of conversations or initiating those sorts of conversations. So that's that's something that you have to factor into how you conduct yourself. But Yeah, it's part of the soft have. skills, I think, that every security professional, and we talked about this as the hard soft skills that we require to, to do our jobs on a regular basis. In, in From a quantification of risk to the business, no one foresaw the fact that we all had to work from home in two weeks. So a lot of these unknown events that were completely far-fetched, how does organization today, like trying to figure out like what is the next potential thing that happened and how you, because again, it's, if it's, you talk about the risk and associated impact, there's just a lot of unknowns. Yeah. We, I feel like we're in an environment that's ever changing. Yeah, I would agree. And to your point exactly, when the pandemic happened and everybody spread to the four winds, there was a reckoning, I think, of how we approach certain conversations. Now, I want to put out there that I don't believe in leading with FUD. I don't want any, I don't want to threaten anybody, especially people who sign paychecks. And I don't want to tell somebody a thing is going to occur without being absolutely certain that it's going to occur. And the only way I'm certain is if I'm doing it. And that's a felony, right? And so I'm not, I'm never willing to go into somebody's office and say, if we don't buy this thing or do this thing or implement this thing, then there's going to be this dramatic catastrophic event. I always try to approach it as here's my semi-quantitative estimation of what's going to happen based on a specific risk scenario, right? What is the risk of somebody going to work from home and somebody in their home that is not them gets access to sensitive information? scale from one to 10, here we are, or red, yellow, green, here we are, right? Now, my, my advice to clients and my own approach is to make sure that one of my very first conversations with leadership is, this is how I'm gonna relay risk to you. Where I can put together a dollar amount, I will try, but it'll be a range. But otherwise, again, red, yellow, green, scale from one to five, scale from one to 10, and I'm gonna tell you what it is, no pressure, no trying to browbeat you about it, but you tell me if you think that's acceptable or we should try to do something about that. And so I think that, and prognosticating certain things, right? Nobody could have predicted in October of 2019 that three months later, again, we're all working from home and IT departments are furiously trying to distribute laptops and whatever else, right? So I can't say with any degree of confidence that there's another major shakeup like that coming. But I do advocate for have a game plan for the unknown. Have something ready to go. And the more prepared you are during times of peace, the better, better suited you are for when war occurs. That's the best I can do. I can't commit to anything. I absolutely try to avoid absolutes. <laughs> That's good. That's a good one. What about the risk tolerance? Because this, again, it's not something that is the same across organizations. Some organizations are more, they're, more, they're okay with being a little riskier than others. It's sure. In fact, maybe it's the nature of the business. You yeah. have to take on certain risk types. How do you deal with that as a security professional? And how do you get the kind of the gist of where they are in terms of how much risk are they willing to take? If I'm honest, I ask. I will ask straight out, whether in an enterprise capacity or as a, as a consultant. I try to ask it in as plain terms as I possibly can, right? How risk hungry are you? What, is your, what are your big, hairy, audacious goals for the organization over the next five quarters? And I, like, I love asking that question because you can see people light up and they say, oh gosh, I'd love to do this, I'd love to do that. 
and I have my own internal notion of if we do this big, hairy, audacious goal thing that they're talking about, that represents a little risk or it represents a lot of risk. And I can infer from there that if they want to do that big, hairy, audacious goal, and we both agree that it's risky, they're open to risk. They're not risk averse. They're not, they're not going to micromanage the risk management process to, to death, right? Or say, I want all risk eliminated. Do what you have to do. The other approach I like to take is if you tell me that you're risk averse, it comes with this dollar amount attached to it to reach that. If you tell me that you're open to risk, we can reduce that number a little bit with these caveats. And, and again, the, introducing that dollar value into the conversation really snaps some people into focus on the idea. I think they definitely understand the difference between being risky or risk adverse. If you put attach a dollar, I think they make them understand clearer what do you mean by a certain risk amount that you're okay with it. Yeah. Because it's you can eliminate the risk or almost close to zero, but it's going to cost you a fortune. Right. Are you okay with it? And they all of a sudden say no. It's like... It's like I said, I always say, it's not the kitchen is too small. It's just for the price. You reduce yeah. the price of the house, then the kitchen is perfectly fine. It's, it's very similar. So from uh, a what you've seen in the kind of the industry perspective, like we've seen a lot of cyber insurance policy that require certain procedures and even policies that are implemented in certain products, for example, EDR and endpoint security and so on. Do you find that it has an impact on organization today in terms of, of moving towards adding additional resources and policies in place to, to protect the organization or there's no impact? There's an impact, but it's interesting. Anecdotally, I had a client recently tell me that their insurance, their prospective insurance carrier, they were trying to establish a policy, had a very specific requirement of them. They wanted 26 character passwords. And the client was beside themselves. Like, how in the heck am I going to get 26 character passwords out into the wild? And my immediate re reaction to that was, that's not the right question. The right question is, why are they advocating for 26 character passwords? Because I would be stunned silly if I couldn't get into a conversation with that exact same representative and say, okay, let's negotiate this 26 character password thing. Can I get away with 16 if I have MFA responsibly deployed in multiple places? Or can I get away with 16 if I have good data governance practices, et cetera? Or so policy, yeah, policy management, privilege access management system. There's all kinds of stuff you can do. Exactly, exactly. So I think the impact, if I can speculate, the impact of businesses is going to be centered around, again, why are they asking for certain requirements? But I'm a little scared if I'm candid because... I think that we've reached a point where we're shifting from organizations have decided that the sum total of their risk management strategy is to, just to buy a big enough policy to make them financially whole if something or when something happens. Now they're coming around to the idea that the insurance provider reason for being their motivation in life is not to pay out on claims. Not, yeah, they're not, not .org. They're right, dot exactly, exactly. And understanding that their policy or their program, rather, their program has to have a more holistic approach than just what they've been doing all along. And I just sincerely hope there's more proactive change in that particular space. Limit the bleeding. I don't ever want to see a mom and pop shop with 25, 30, 40 employees become victims of ransomware and then the insurance provider doesn't pay out because they didn't implement 26 character passwords or whatever. 
delivery. So I think that's the fundamental change I'm seeing. Insurance providers are getting smarter about not paying out on claims based on perceived or defensible negligence on the part of on the part of clients. So I think there's change coming, very definitely change coming, and I do not think at any point that change is going to be insurance providers paying out on more claims. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, coming back to the kind of the policy, then how do you start with implementing a policy that is reasonable? And again, it's not something you can turn on overnight. Let's say, okay, now we have a policy. It's a process, right? How do you create something that is manageable and you're able to communicate that to businesses, the business units and so on, and do that in such a way that you don't get that crazy pushback on, yeah, yeah on the, because that's, the human element can be very deterministic in terms of the success of the policy associated with it. How do you do right. that? I try to be I try to be a mediator in the conversation, but I always try to make sure clients have inputs from again multiple corners of the organization. Have everybody come into a meeting and say, "Here are the top things I want to talk through." I'm not going to waste everybody's time by going through a ream of paper that will inevitably be our written information security policy. But I want to take the quick hits, right? We all can agree, for example, that data should be protected. Put that to rest. We're not going to debate that one to death. But now let's start negotiating terms on password length, password complexity requirements, multi-factor authentication and where it should be, who gets access to what, etc. And the absolute best way to have that dialogue is to make sure that everybody involved is in the conversation and has some input into that, uh, that process. But for me as a consultant, and, I, and there's a liberating aspect to this too, especially being an external observer, I can say if this corner of the org wants eight character passwords, I can quietly contribute to the conversation by saying the risk there is too high. Unless, and again, this is, don't be the department of no, be the department of yes, if, no, but we can do this instead. If you want eight character passwords in your particular business unit, understand that that comes with multi-factor authentication on everything twice a day. It's amazing how people's tune changes after that. They're like, oh, okay, I guess I'll deal with longer passwords, right? It's the... Mike, it sounds like you you're also have to establish the art of negotiations, like when you're, you're deploying some 100%. of this stuff. hundred percent. Yes, absolutely a hundred percent. And again, you have to divorce yourself of the emotional component. You go into that meeting as a security professional thinking, I'm not coming out with less than 16 character passwords. You've already failed walking into the room. You have to go in there with, you want X, I want Y, or said differently, you want X, I want Z, we can meet at Y and be happy. Which means maybe if you want 16 character passwords, you walk in the room saying 24, so that you can negotiate down to what you wanted to leave with, but that's a different tactic subject. And do you have a staggered approach, like in meaning that you are like you have phase approach where you have phase one, phase two, phase three, or do you say, okay, this is where we have to be by certain, what typically, how do you typically get to act in actuality to start implementing the policy? Wherever there's a requirement, right? If uh, let's say organizations have decided that CMMC, let's lean into C. We have very real timelines associated with enforcement of CMC. The details have varied a number of times since the standard was announced, but again, we still have dates and there's very real consequences established there. If you want to do business with the DOD and you're a prime, you don't have a choice. You have to be compliant to whatever level applies to your particular relationship with the DOD. 
at that point, somebody else set the deadlines, we have to meet the deadlines, right? But in the absence of something like that, I don't believe in letting perfect get in the way of better. If a week from now we have made one minor change to the program that improved risk management, that's a win. If a week after that we've made another minor incremental improvement, even better. And hopefully we can start picking up the pace. Outside influences notwithstanding, I'm okay with taking that iterative approach. But I will also say that you can do tremendous it's force multiplier for implementation. If you can convince people that they want that change, show them why it's important, show them in exquisite detail why this is relevant. It's not just me bounding, binding everybody with red tape. It's that this occurred, this was the consequence, this was the cost of the organization. Layoffs were considered as a result, so we want to do this thing. And again, that's leaning into the fear aspect. But if you tie it back to somebody's motivations, then it becomes a different conversation, right? Anybody who's ever been a victim of identity threat, theft, or had to jump through hoops to restore their credit understands the importance of authentication and credential controls, right? It's the same thing for the business, only multiplied by the number of employees in that organization. Again, anytime that you can tie it back to somebody's personal motivations, that's a force multiplier for you. I don't believe in hitting people about, about the head and shoulders with, thou shalt do this because it's written in the policy. That, I don't think that's the case. I want them to see the policy before they get beaten about the head and shoulders. Speaking of beating, I'm assuming you have to have some very difficult conversations sometimes with folks, the executives and so on, where maybe they're not aware of what the risks are, or maybe they're not aware of what it is that they have to do in order for, to get to level. How do you deal with that? As, as And sometimes as an external consultant, it's, again, as a, it's easier, it might be harder, depending on what, how you look at it. What's your approach of handling these difficult conversations? Actually, I had a difficult conversation in an enterprise capacity once where I was speaking to my boss at the time, the CEO of the firm that I worked for, rather, at the time. And I was trying to express something that he was asking for posed undue risk to the organization. And that was through my own lens, right? I knew that what he was asking for had tremendous potential impact to the organization. And I tried to relay that, tried to express that to him, and he shrugged it off. He said, don't care, it's what I want, do it, right? And I did not have a ready readily obvious mechanism for that yes if. It was just this whole thing you're asking for is a date with destiny. This is going to go wrong. It's going to go wrong very badly in a very ugly and very expensive fashion. And he said, no, do it anyway. And at that point, my philosophy at the time may be slightly different than it is today. I was thinking to myself, I'm the one still on the hook when something happens. If for no other reason, then I'm the one responsible for the recovery on picking up the, pat the pieces, the shattered pieces of the environment afterward. And so I'm not willing to accept that myself. And I ultimately left the organization. That was one of Couldn't the- Couldn't you just have, them, have them sign a document saying, well, hey, hey, listen, this is what I told you. This right. is, this is then maybe recorded. I have it to, multiple copies everywhere. And that's one of the things I advocate for as a consultant. My teams, my peers, anybody who, who we tell a client, you really should consider the risk to the organization here. I, it's a yes or no question, right? So I came from a managed services provider. Does this client's decision or this client's decision to decline our recommendation, does it pose a risk to us as a service provider? If yes, automatic risk acceptance form. 
and tons of documentation ferreted away for the inevitable. And then sometimes you, don't you sometimes also have to almost like fire the customer? No? Some sometimes. some MSSPs are, we're not, com we're not comfortable having because regardless of, I, I think regardless of those forms, you're still, as a service provider, going to get blamed yep. if something happens, regardless of, even if you say, oh, I told you. Yeah, right? and I think the delineation has to be, like I said, does this pose, that's the next step in that workflow. Does this pose a risk to us as a service provider? If yes, does this pose a potential risk to other clients? If yes, hit the flush button on that particular situation. Maybe the client, maybe the scenario, whatever, but at a minimum, you have to put yourself in the position of protecting yourself and your other client against that particular scenario. And again, that was my risk mitigation approach from my perspective was his name's on the door. He made the decision to accept that risk. I've expressed what I needed to express, but I'm not willing to bear the impact of what I think is going to happen next. And so you can't fight City Hall, I just found a new home. Yeah, and speaking of fighting something, we have now are coming into a new era where we can see like for Uber CISO that they're gonna spend some time behind bars, which is, again, something that I think has a tremendous industry impact. What's your take on that? Would that make an impact in terms of how much risk are executives willing to take and cybersecurity professionals are willing to take moving forward? There's a couple things I want to unpack. The first thing is that I think that Sullivan was prosecuted based on perceived or otherwise evidence of a cover-up, right? We Correct. at a minimum structured our messaging such that we obfuscated the truth of what happened. And so I think that any prosecution in that space is defensible, asterisk right? That asterisk being, I have been in situation, situations where I'm up to my eyeballs in an incident and legal counsel is in everybody's ear saying things like, you don't use the breach word even in polite conversation, right? You can't talk about X, you can't talk about, and then also trying to shift the narrative, right? This is what happened. This is what I tell legal counsel happened, but legal counsel goes to another individual and says, something different, the game of telephone, right? And what are ever the chances that legal counsel is held responsible for negligence when it comes to the organization? Just about zero, right? So like I said, I think in Sullivan's case, it is an eye, or in the case of Uber, it is an eye-opening situation. But I also like to think that if you conduct yourself ethically, your chances of being prosecuted in that way are dr dramatically lower. If you are in an incident and you have folks in the business saying, no, don't write that report or change this paragraph in the report or do this, that, and the next thing, you should have an immediate and firm response. No, I will control where this report goes to. I will only give it to my leadership, fine. But at no point in time am I going to misrepresent what occurred or what I know about. I was involved in an organization that had a very dramatic incident that featured ransomware and data exfiltration and we had evidence, we had been told, we'd been briefed that there was data exfiltration of client data. And we brought that up the chain and the response back was, and my advice, my guidance was, hey, the clock has started. As soon as we became aware of, of that, there are breach notification obligations that have just kicked in. And that without undue delay, phrasing may sound like a long enough rope, but it's also the one that's going to hang us if we don't report those, uh, those actions, those incidents. And the response back from leadership was, nope, shut up, do not say a word. Now, per the protocols that are established, I'm not gonna pick up the phone and call the clients and tell them, 
But if I'm asked, if I'm called out, I have to say, this is what I know to be true. So I do think, again, the Uber case exposes the need for people to conduct themselves ethically and with personal responsibility, if nothing else. Yeah, and sometimes you don't know all the moving pieces. So when you're in the, and yes, you have a guiding light in terms of where you have to be. And it's always, I like to think that I would say 99% of us are, will always do the right thing in the moment. Yeah. But with that said, they might may have other certain insinuating circumstances that are that cause them to make the wrong decision at the time. For sure. And maybe because it wasn't a an incident just like that prior to, maybe they thought they can get away with it at the time because this is new. So do you think that this? And again, this is the, there's all kinds of there's so many variables associated with it, with something like this, right? So. Absolutely. Again, like you don't know what the, the pressure they were in, but is it right for them to take the fall today? Like just due to the fact that they were responsible for it, I guess, as the chief information security officer, but there were other folks that were obviously involved. What do you, what is your take on it? Yes and no. I do think CISOs take the fall for security incidents way too often. And I think reasons vary. If you're a bad CISO, then you're a bad CISO. That's just how it is. And there's any number of reasons that might be the case. And not all of them are negligence or willful, willful negligence. But if you're a good CISO, absent good support from above or absent the resources you need to conduct a good program, then that's a bird of a different feather. And I do I strongly lament the current protocol of any time there's an incident in my organization, I as the leadership group are going to jettison the CISO, right? I'd like to see more CEOs get canned for incidents, if I'm frank, but only in the case where the CISO was doing a good job, doing their part, and wasn't getting support from the CEO. Then we can draw a straight line to the problem and we should take care of it accordingly. Yeah, I think CISOs take it on the chin a bit too much when it comes to security incidents. I also think that in, in the aggregate, we need to shift our language with leadership. It's not a matter of if, but when. And when it happens, boss, I am going to be ready. And here's how I can demonstrate that I'm going to be ready. I think that in a lot of cases, what we don't see, there's always three sides to every story, yours, theirs, and the truth. What we see is a very public firing or shaming of a CISO, and what we don't see is whether or not, again, that CISO raised those concerns, or they just had a bad patch management protocol, or they had asset management for program level problems, right? Nobody's perfect, but you have to have a defensible strategy against those things. Yeah, and, 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 it's, and it's complicated, not to, but it's really complicated. Look at you, like you're a security professional. And even then, in order for you to really understand the details, you've got to spend some time. It's not yeah. about reading the headlines. You really have to go dive in deeper into what exactly happened. What was the chain of events? This is not, oh, reading a headline, oh, he's guilty or not. Exactly, for sure. And there's always opportunity for a CISO to be, or in this case, the Uber, the former Uber CISO being prosecuted. There's opportunity for that to be legitimately wrongful or for the punishment not to fit the crime. There's, a, there's certainly opportunity for that. I can't make any decisions there. I can't be sure of whatever decision. I'm, I know what I think has happened based on the information I have, but uh, I wasn't there. I wasn't there in the room. I wasn't there during the incident. Certainly wasn't there in the courtroom. If everybody, again, just conducts themselves def defensively and ethically and documents that accordingly, Going back to the concept of risk, I think your risk is relatively low. But if you're empires and just 
taking roles and glad-handing folks and not really paying attention to the to the program, then what you get is what you get. I've always felt you have 90 days as a CISO, right? You have 90 days from when your feet touch the floor to find all the bodies because on day 91, they're your bodies, right? You are absolutely responsible for whatever happened 120 days prior, two years prior, 10 years prior, right? So it should be an immediate and swift scavenger hunt for here's all the things that are wrong. And don't be shy about pulling other people into that conversation. Get those conversations with other business process owners. Tell me your pain points. Tell me what's going on. Tell me what you hate about this. Tell me about how was your day? How's your family? Right? All those sorts of things. Because again, day 91, whatever happens is your fault. I've seen so many CISOs get released from companies because a thing occurred that, they, that wasn't on their radar. If you told the boss that I think this might happen once per year and it happens once per year, if you get fired, it's for a different reason. But if you tell the boss this can't happen and then it happens, that's a resume generating event and it should be. And But a lot of things that they can do, they can minimize the impact. As you mentioned, it's not about if but when and incidents can be managed a certain way that, it's, that the organization can still continue and is more resilient to these sure. events, right? Yep. In your opinion, what can organization do? What was the top one or two, th three things they can do right now to make sure that they, when they get hit, their their the impact is not devastating to the organization. They can move on and take care of business and, and continue doing business down the road. The first thing, of course, is that executive sponsorship piece. Have that dialogue, establish that that ongoing conversation with leadership across the organization at the top and throughout the organization, and then also have an incident response plan. Now, I'm not asking for an incident response plan that meets like ISO standards or NIST standards. It's, I want something crisp. And even if, it, if you start out with a call tree, right? And a call tree and an on-call rotation that everybody understands if my phone rings at two o'clock in the morning and it's my day, these are the first five people I'm calling. It's almost, Mike, it's almost trivial. But how come they don't have it? Isn't it? It's amazing, right? It's amazing. When you say it out in the open, and I'm thinking out loud, isn't it something that they should have anyway? And you're saying right now this is something that is, again, because you you have so much experience, you it does not exist today. Some organizations don't have it. One of, the first, one of the questions I like asking when I go through folks' incident response plans is I ask, okay, if this scenario happens and I tell a tale, this is the scenario that occurred, right? Who needs to, does anybody need to go out on site? Yeah, I'm this person, okay. If it's two in the morning, do they have access to the building? And I kid you not, I've asked that of organizations that are tenants and in a building that's managed by others, and I can just see the color drain from their face. They're like, no, because somebody else controls the badges. We control the badges into our office, but somebody else controls access to the facility, to the building. So Mike, occurred, didn't have that in Facebook? I think Facebook, was it like that they, someone did not have access to the data center to, to reboot the whatever because it was access to ACL? They were, anyway, right. something happened that they had to actually physically have access and somebody did not have it. Yeah, and, right? it's, and, it, and that's the tale you have to tell of the chain afterward when you're doing the post-mortem, right? They affectionately call that the autopsy of the event. When you're doing that process, you have to go to executive leadership and say, hey, we had a four hour delay in response because somebody didn't have access to the facility. I don't care who they are. If they've got a C in their title, they're gonna say, that's stupid. How the heck did that happen? That is such a trivial thing. 
unbelievable. I cannot imagine the world in which that could occur because they can't and they're right. Or so I couldn't get to the call tree because it was in SharePoint and SharePoint is hosted internally. Come on, seriously? Like you didn't think ahead to that one? There should be a break class in case of opening ability to access the call tree. Yeah, good incident response that doesn't, you don't have to boil the ocean or have a ream of paper for the thing. Even if it's just right now a call tree, this is who I'm calling. But then spider that out from how am I getting notified? Did somebody call me? Did an email come in? And if an email came in, is anybody reading emails at two in the morning? Is it a ticket? How do tickets get prioritized? Just it's If nothing else, do that thought exercise. If this happened, who's going to tell me how and then what am I going to do immediately afterward? Mike, that's amazing. Because that, I hear, first of all, it's not that complicated to do what you just described. There's no cost associated with it. It's something you can easily implement, and yet the impact is tremendous to the organization to be able to come back. So why don't an organization do it more often? You heard it here first, guys. Just let's get it fixed. That's crazy. I think there's a little bit of analysis paralysis. The confluence of frameworks and standards that we have make things sound bigger than they are or that you need a specific technology. Oh, I don't have the right tool to make a broadcast to every phone in the department. I need you to make one call first and you don't need anything but a phone number to do that. Let's step back from the big grandiose, it has to meet all these requirements and get down to the brass tacks of what it is I'm trying to accomplish and make that first incremental step. So I think a lot of people haven't implemented things because they don't know if they're going to do it right. And I'm saying there's a lot of rights, only if, or there's a lot of wrongs, and there's a few rights, and none of them have to be expensive or especially arduous. Yeah. So Mike, I feel like we, we have to do part B of this conversation because we're just sure. starting to warm up here, but we are running out of time, uh, your, your beeping thing for the next meeting. But what's the easiest way for people to reach out to you for to know more and get in touch? I would say LinkedIn, my LinkedIn address. We have M. Pedrick, first initial, last name as, my, as the last part of that URL. LinkedIn is the best place or through Newspire, the company that I work as a consultant for. Go to newspire.com, they'll find me. They'll <laughs> Amazing stuff. And Mike, thank you very much for joining me today. Riveting conversation. I really enjoyed it and learned a lot as well. And until the next conversation, thank you very much. Again, stay safe, everyone who uh, who joined today and offline as well as online. I'll see you next time. All right. Thank you much. Take care. Bye-bye. <laughs>